may be seated. It's wonderful to see you guys this morning. So my name's Tony. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. This is Wellspring. If this is your first time, so glad you are here with us. So glad you can worship with us. Uh, No matter where you are on your journey of trying to follow Jesus, uh, we are glad you are here. Uh, I noticed this little area. I'm just wondering, like, I did deodorant and everything today, so I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you. Front row. Love it. Now, if you're a, a little kid in elementary school and you want to hang out with some other little kids, your teachers are over here and they want to hang out with you. If you are a middle schooler or a high schooler, uh, Charlie and Matthew are here. They want to hang out with you. And if, you've put, if you're a teen and you've put work into the room, in the high school room, you should go check it out because it looks so much better. Uh, it was a little painful before, but now it is getting awesome. So thank you for all your help. So teens, and if you're just hankering to hang out with some teens, you think it'll be more fun, you're welcome to join them. It will be fun. All right. This morning, I want to start with a, a story. So maybe, maybe if you go to work or if you're in high school or wherever you are in college, is there, have you ever had someone in your workplace or in your life that like, after a while, it's just kind of hard. Someone over here, maybe. Have you ever had someone like that? No, not, okay, not you, but someone over here, maybe. Uh, when I was up in Washington, there was this guy, Matt, uh, we'll call him Mike, who was in a group that I was leading, and he was just like every week, you'd try and go somewhere in a conversation, and he was just like, boom, in another direction. And it wasn't like a fun direction generally. It was almost always like depressing and distracting. And after a few months, I started literally having people coming up to me after the class being like, can you do something about this guy? Like it was starting to annoy people. You know, and everyone's like, oh, we're Christians. But in the end, he was annoying them. And they're just like, can we like kick him out? Probably the least likely person in that group to experience any transformation, right? Everyone in that group is growing except for Mike. And then one day, he has this profound encounter with Jesus. And he comes into my office, and it was like, well, something's different. But I was pretty cynical at this point because I'd hung out with Mike for a while. And I was thinking, there's no way this is going to last. You ever had that experience? The cynicism of our culture rises up a little bit in you. I'm like, there's no way it's going to last. But it starts to last. And he starts to be the guy in the group who's now challenging everyone else, right? He's like discipling people in attuned to the spirit at times. He's like driving. Okay. You know, he's this guy now who's like so attuned to the spirit at times. He's like driving down the road and he's like, I think God wants me to pray for that person. And he'll literally pull over his car and he'll like pray for them. And it's like, yeah, you know, I was just praying and hoping someone would come by me. He's having like these stories. He's not like the weird guy stopping at the corner. He's like, God's like totally using him in these cool ways. Mike was the least likely person in that group to experience Jesus and transformation. No one expected it. And I share this story because we're in the midst of John 4. Last week we did sort of part one. This week we're doing part two. And the Samaritan woman in John 4 is probably the least likely person in her village and one of the least likely people in Israel that anyone expected to experience transformation, to see God drawing near. 
If you remember last week, we talked about sort of the walk. If you were going to take a walk from Judah to uh, Galilee, Jews would almost always take two routes. They'd either go along the Mediterranean Sea in order to avoid Samaria, or they'd go along the Jordan River that connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, right? They would sort of pass in people they did not like. Longer, they were trying to avoid the Samaritans who they viewed as outcasts and people they did not like, right? So what does Jesus do? He just goes right through Samaria. He goes to a place called Sychar, and in Sychar, he enters Sychar in the middle of the day, and he encounters a woman at the middle of the day at a well. She's at the well in the middle of the day because she's outcast from her own village, right? Because everyone else gathers water in the morning and the evening because it is hot. Jesus decides, you know what? I am going to try to, reveal, I'm going to reveal myself to the least likely person that anyone would expect. And he has this profound encounter with her. And he's like, you know, I have living water that will bubble up in you to eternal life. And just as she's trying to process and make sense of this, literally, she's like on the cusp, right? She's like, ah, I think I get it. The disciples enter. This is where the text picks up. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I did. I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, brought him food that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I'll tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So the Samaritans came to him and they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Right, so you have this Jesus having this interaction with this person that the disciples deem sort of inappropriate, someone he shouldn't be talk to, talking to, a Samaritan, a woman, an outcast, gathering her water in the middle of the day. And just as she's trying to make sense of what's going on, right, the disciples barge in, they come back, they have no sense of what Jesus is at, food, you know, he's doing something here. They're just like, hey, we got food, you know. We grabbed some falafel. You want some? But instead of saying, you know, come on, guys, you know, he uses this sort of as a teaching moment, realizing that they're totally clueless. You know, sometimes like we are every so often, Jesus uses this moment of cluelessness to teach them something. He says this in verse 32. I have something to eat you know nothing about. 
And the disciples are funny at this point because they're sort of either assuming Jesus is a food hoarder or that someone's like visited him, bringing him, you know, a nice salad and some olives and, you know, that he's sort of storing it and they don't, they can't see it, hiding it behind the well, perhaps. And you have this sort of repeating theme in John at this point where Jesus is talking and the, whoever he's talking to assumes he's speaking literally. So in this context, they assume he's speaking about literal food and he's talking on a lower level, Right. Earlier before, he says, I'm going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. And the religious leaders think, oh, he's talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. Then he talks to Nicodemus and says, hey, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, oh, wait, how am I going to enter my mom's womb? And he's like, no, 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 you know, another level. He talks to the woman at the well and says, I have living water. And she's thinking, how are you going to ladle it? Right? She's thinking literally. That's happening again. Jesus about falafel, and he is thinking about something much deeper. Jesus is using food here as a way to talk about sustenance. Right? Our bodies need calories, obviously. Jesus will eat uh, bread and drink wine and eat fish as the gospel proceeds right now. He's talking about as human beings, as creatures made in God's image, right? We long for something more than just calories, the meaning, purpose, calling, vocation. And what we see here is that Jesus understands what he is about. Right? Not simply feeding his body, but aligning his life and his heart with the kingdom and purposes of God. What we see here in this line is that God has a will for him, right? It's not like, here, Jesus, go for it. And it's like, no, there's a will, and he's trying to align himself with it. We also see that he is sent by God, right? It's not simply like, he's like, I'm going to go do this. No, he's sent by God to align his life with the will of God to finish the work of God. Beasley Murray, he's a theologian. He has a commentary, word biblical commentary. He says this, she, the Samaritan woman, did not grasp what Jesus had to give her, lived by. Hey, the disciples did not grasp what Jesus himself lived by, the satisfaction of doing the Father's will and carrying out to the finish the work given to him to do. Right In this moment, Jesus has specifically aligned himself with the Father, not gone the circuitous routes to Galilee, but gone right through Samaria, crossing all kinds of barriers ethnic, gender, religious, in order to align himself with the Father's will so that this woman could be a surprising recipient of his presence. This is how he continues. He says, he gives these two agricultural parables. He says this, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Now, we're not first century farmers, so maybe just a little sort of window into this verse real quick. So in uh, first century Palestine, there's basically a six-month agricultural cycle. And from the last seed of sowing to the first seed of the first like fruit of the harvest is four months. So there's this gap where you wait. And what Jesus is saying right now to the disciples is, you think we're in the process of sowing, but I'm telling you right now, sowing and reaping is happening simultaneously. Not like in a normal Palestinian farmer's experience, but right now, sowing and reaping is going to hack culture again, though. Now, Jesus isn't just talking about agriculture again, though. Right? The parable is about the kingdom of God. 
And this idea of harvest represents the gathering of people into the kingdom. Now the second parable, verse 36 says, Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, normally, Jesus kind of takes this concept and flips it on its head. So if you read throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, what you'll see, like Micah's a good example. He says this, you will sow but never reap. And it's this sense of, okay, you work your whole life. You work hard. You build up a retirement account, something like that, right? And then somehow, someone gets access to all your bank accounts, all your stuff, and then exports all your money into their accounts. They go down to Mexico and drink pina coladas while now you're sitting there with no money in your bank account wondering what to do. One sows, another reaps, right? That's sort of the, the basic understanding of this phrase in general. But Jesus flips it on its head. He says, someone sowing or some." Sowing and sower and reaper work together. Whether someone's sowing or someone's reaping, it doesn't matter. They're both focused on the end goal of gathering people into the kingdom. And that they rejoice whatever their role is. So let's stop now for a second and return back to sort of the narrative flow of John 4. Jesus encounters this woman. He says, you know, I have living water for you. He's sowing. And in the midst of this, the disciples arrive. She now goes off to her village. And now she is taking what Jesus is sowing and she's sowing again. And this is happening simultaneously while Jesus is teaching the disciples. So you can see sort of the elegance of this flow from a narrative perspective. Right in John, or in verse 28, John writes, right, this outcast Samaritan woman upon the turn of the disciples says this, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the will? Could this be the Messiah? Right, the harvest is upon them. The thing that's really interesting for me is that you start seeing a pattern developing in John. We also see Tin Woman encounters the person of Jesus and then she goes, tells her village. We also see something similar in John 1. Right? Philip encounters the person of Jesus. What is the first thing he does? Goes and tells Nathaniel. And then he brings Nathaniel back to Jesus. Then what happens later in John 1? Andrew encounters the person of Jesus. What is the first thing he does? He goes and tells Peter. Peter comes back to Jesus. Also what we see in the Gospels as they develop is you see fishermen called by Jesus. What do they do? They leave their nets and follow him. What happens here? You see a Samaritan woman encounter the person of Jesus, leave her bucket, and go to her village. But there's more. This is how the story ends, right? Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. 
Right? So this unlikely recipient of the gospel carries it, and many people believe, because she says, this is what happened to me. She's not a theologian. She's not seminary trained. She just said, this is what happened to me. Can you believe it? Many people welcome Jesus. And then what happens, right? They go to Jesus. Now they welcome Jesus in. And then they say this, and because of his words, many more became believers. Right now they're encountering Jesus and more of them are like, ah, I like this guy. I'd like a little more of this. And they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, right? It goes from her story to their experience, to their sense of belief. They're drinking the living water and it's welling up to eternal life. And this is how they end. You, we, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. She tells them her experience. They encounter Jesus and then they say, savior of the world, which hasn't actually been introduced as a phrase yet. Kind of interesting. It's actually a title that Caesar held in the first century. So Caesar is the empire or the king of the empire, self-proclaimed God. And he says, I am king over all of this territory. I oversee the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And what we do is we conquer barbarians, conquer those barbarian kingdoms, bring in peace. And they call me the savior of the world. What are saying at this very moment is there is a new king in town. And if you remember the story of the Jesus with the Samaritan woman, you remember that she sort of brings up this religious idea. She's like, well, you worship here at Mount Zion. We worship at Mount Gerizim. Right? They're creating a distinction based on place. And what Jesus is saying here, or what the people are saying here is, you are not just the king of Mount Zion, but the king of Mount Gerizim and all the mountains of the world. You are not just the king of the temple in Zion, but you are the king of all the temples in all the earth. And all of this happens because Jesus, aligned with the will of the Father, decides to walk through Samaria. He decides to walk up to a woman at a well that he really shouldn't have been talking to, you know, shouldn't have been. And because of this alignment of his, sort of his life with the Father's will, they go from, the gospel goes from a Jewish, very small Jewish movement into Samaria, prefiguring how the gospel will go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. All via a woman at a well and a rap encounter with her that changed her life and began to change the world. And I think the question is now, like, cool story. There's a real beautiful elegance to the flow of it. But how does it, how does it translate, right? How does it, like, hit the ground if you're a mom in PG, if you're a college student, if you're working at Chomp, if you're working in Ag, if you're at the aquarium? How does this actually, like, hit the ground on any level for us to go from an abstract, cool story to something that actually changes our lives? I think the first thing that I would sort of focus on is, I don't know, I sort of phrase as God's work, our food, and the harvest. 
See, my hope at Wellspring is that we are the kind of people that practice the way of Jesus. We don't just kind of do our own thing. We actually look at the example of Jesus and allow it to inform our life. What we see here is that Jesus aligns his life and his will with the Father. He is sent by the Father into the world to reveal the goodness and the kingdom of God. He crosses cultural barriers, right? He meets this woman who is an unlikely recipient of the gospel, shares it with her, and it sort of leads to this crazy transformation of a community. Beasley Murray again, and we're biblical commentary, says this. This is your ministry of Jesus is represented by the evangelist, this is John, as obedience in action, which leads him finally to the surrender of himself unto death. Right? For the Jesus, the spiritual life isn't simply an idea. It's not like some idea that we carry around. It's a way of aligning our thoughts, our hearts, and our lives with Jesus and the way he lives so that we can live a kingdom life in the world. And I guess one of my questions for us today is like, if you were to actually look at your life on the ground, you know, not in this hour on Sunday morning, but on the ground, do you see a sense of like what your role is in the kingdom? I think it's more than sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. So what is that? Jesus had this sense of God has sent me. What is your role in your household, on your block? in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Where does practicing the way of Jesus actually hit the ground for you in everyday life? Jesus says that when you participate in the kingdom, right, you're, you're sowing and you're reaping in your life. One of the things that I'm just very aware of for me is that sometimes I am more focused on physical food, grabbing pokey than I am sort of spiritual food and trying to align my life and my will with the Father. Pokey is good. There's a couple good ones, seriously, right? But it is easy, I think. It's easy, I think, in our culture, especially because there's this sort of undertone uh, in our world that like, uh, personal things, you know, you keep personal things private, right? It's sort of like, well, religion and politics, keep it to yourself. It just leads to divisiveness, right? Like that's sort of in the ethos of our culture. And, and it's, there's a reason for it because often people take these things and they just run people over and it just leads to a sense of like division and divisiveness. There's a certain arrogance of like, I'm right, you're wrong, you know, just listen to me. If you did, your life would be better, right? It's like, Well, maybe not. That's not the best way of doing it. But what we see in the text, John 1 through 4, is that personal things are meant to be shared. Can you see it? I mean, just time and time again, right? Philip tells Nathaniel. Andrew tells people to be shared, actually. And woman tells her people. Personal things are meant to be shared, actually. Actually, in our culture, when we dislocate our personal lives from our friendships and our community, we actually uh, really undermine friendship itself. This is one of the reasons, I think, that sort of we continually emphasize this acronym, ABLE. 
Now, able is our way of saying, hey, these are practices that should shape what it means to follow Jesus so that it's not just a theoretical idea, but something that you actually enflesh and embody in everyday life. Able is our way of saying, okay, there's basically four things we ask everyone to do every week. A, attend to the Spirit, right? Jesus is saying he's aligned. He knows the Father has sent him. He's trying to finish that work. All right, so do we take time every week to attend to what the Spirit is saying to us? How is God calling you? What is the work God is giving you? Are you attending to the Spirit's voice so that you are aligned with Him in everyday life? You know, if you're thinking about going around the sea and He says, go through Samaria, do you even know? I think it begins with attending. Bless. We want to be a people that are blessing, right? Abraham, so God says to Abraham, I want to make you a blessing that will benefit the entire world. We are caught up in that mission to be outside. Are you a blessing? Are there people in your life? Are you blessing people in this body and outside? Saying this is who Jesus is. He blesses people. When you look at your life, are you a blessing? L, learn. Learning from the scriptures. We should be grounded in the scriptures, right? They shape who we are and how we follow Jesus. And E, you know, it's sort of a silly one, but super Jesus-y. This idea of eating. Spending time eating with people in this body to build community and eating with people outside church walls as a way to build friendship. My conviction is that if we are the kind of people that are attending to the Spirit, blessing people outside the church, and eating with them, we will be the witnesses sent into the world, building friendship, and then guess what happens? You actually make friends with people outside church. They're not projects. They're your friends. And what do you do with friends? You share personal things. And it just makes sense. It's intuitive. It flows out of natural related, relatedness and connectedness. And I guess I, I asked you this morning, like, if you were to look at your life, are you the kind of person that is attending, that is blessing and is eating with people outside church walls so that you can be friends and connect and share what is most personal with you, just as Nathaniel and Phil with those they knew. Peter and the Samaritan woman shared the, what was most personal to them with those they knew. When you look at your life, is there one of those things you're like, dude, I rock at attending, but I'm terrible at eating with people. Maybe you can pick one of those and say, I'm going to work on that this month. There's only one more day, I think, in this month, so you only got three days or whatever. (laughs) The second thing I just want to focus on for a minute is uh, how this translates into everyday life is that there is sort of a surprising receptivity in this passage. We just live in this super cynical culture, I think, and I think it's pervaded the church of like, I'm not going to talk about any of this stuff. People are just going to dismiss me. They don't care. You know, and it's sort of this like, I'm not going to do this. Because there's this cynicism that pervades so much of this idea of being a witness or carrying the good news from the well to our friends and bringing them back to the well, right? Like, there's this cynicism that we all breathe. And I think that's born of a few things, but one of the things I want to challenge is I think that part of that cynicism is that we're saying to people, I just want you to go to the well. I don't actually care about you. And I think when we actually attend, bless, and eat with people, we actually form friendships, right? And then it's just sharing, and it's about our fear, 
of being known. Not that people aren't open. When, when we welcome people into our homes and our lives and we bless them, my experience is they want to know us. Two, I think that there is a surprising receptivity in the world to the message of the kingdom. And I think this story should undermine and challenge all of our cynicism. The Samaritan woman is the least likely person to experience life-changing transformation in the presence of Jesus. My friend Mike, right, was the least likely person in our group, in our church, to experiencing that kind of radical shift. And the truth is, when I was in high school, and I was graduating high school, I can guarantee you that I was probably in the top five people least likely to ever become a pastor. Right? I, never, I was never invited into any kind of religious setting until I was in college playing football. I was the least likely person. I remember coming back after encountering the person of Jesus and people being like, what? I couldn't believe it to receive his. Tends to work in the places and in the people that are least likely to receive his message. Just to show that he is good and powerful, can do things that is not our ability and wisdom, but it is about him. I think sometimes we take on this burden of like, man, I need to be super smart, or I need to be crazy clever, or I need to be whatever. And I think what this passage says us is like, no, just be faithful. Be honest. Be authentic. Be kind. And when we do that, God will do the rest. Our role is not to say, hey, drink the living water, you know? Our role is to say, hey, I've experienced living water. Are you open to that? This is what it did for me. And then we let God carry the burden. Third thing. And I think this is maybe the most important. What we see in John 4 is that the gospel, the goodness of God, goes from the wellspring to the world. And we see this pattern repeated throughout John. Right? Andrew meets Peter, invites Peter. Peter meets Jesus. Peter then leads thousands of people to Jesus in Acts. Philip meets Jesus. Philip brings Nathaniel. Nathaniel encounters Jesus. They both go into the world. Leaves a Samaritan woman at the well, drinks of the living water, leaves her bucket, but carries the water because the wellspring is now within her. And she carries it to her village. Her village comes to Jesus, and then they go out into the world. It always starts with Jesus, it always begins at the wellspring. I think some of us feel like overwhelmed and burdened. And I think part of that is because we're disconnected from that wellspring. We feel like a parched desert ground right now. You walk in here, you're cracked clay, and you're just like, I'm dying here. And I think Jesus' offer is to you is the same as a Samaritan woman. I have water that you can drink. Living water that will well up into you into eternal life. 
Not water that's just poured on you, and then you get, you know, after a day in the sun, it cracks again. This is a wellspring, right? What does it do? Water keeps welling up and actually becomes a river that flows in the desert, leading to life popping up around it. As we shift towards worship, I'll invite the worship team up. There's this guy in the, I think it's the first or second century. His name's Ephraim the Syrian. I just invite you to listen to it. This really kind of beautiful summary of this passage. I just invite you to listen to it. It won't be projected. At the beginning of the conversation, he, Jesus, did not make himself known to her. But first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all the Messiah. She tried to get the better of a thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet. And she came to adore the Christ. That's my hope as we enter into worship is that no matter where we enter into the conversation with God this morning, that we would get to this place of just loving adoration of Jesus who offers us so much more than a Sunday morning. He offers us living water. He wants to satisfy our souls. He wants to bring us life. And his hope, right, is that we will carry that bit of water within us wherever we go, like a stream running through the desert that will bring life wherever it flows. Let me pray for us. Come you in this place. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you in this place. We realize that we are broken and frail creatures carrying buckets that leak, trying to draw from cisterns that are broken and cracked. And God, we ask that you in this moment by the power of your spirit would just uh, bring that living water close to us that we may drink and we may experience that life-giving water that doesn't just satisfy for a minute, but leads to life that continues to bubble up and overflow. God, so that we are not just satisfied but our families and our coworkers and our community experiences the life-giving water of your presence. God, no matter how we come in today, in this moment, we declare and we invite you to be the king of our heart.